0: Welcome to the Words Matter Library.
1: Welcome to the Words Matter Library, brought to you by Audible.
2: We are proud to partner with Audible. If you haven't listened to one of their titles, you're missing out. Audible really does unleash the power of the spoken word. Elise, tell them about our holiday special offer.
1: This year, give the gift of Audible to someone on your list, and right now, for a limited time, Words Matter listeners can get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. I love a deal. You should, too. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500.
2: That's audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500.
1: Audible, because words matter. This week, we're adding to the Words Matter library, Tailspin, the people and forces behind America's 50-year fall and those fighting to reverse it by Stephen Brill. Joining me today is our executive producer and my sometime co-host, Adam Levine. Adam also served in the White House for President George W. Bush. He was also a senior producer at NBC News and began his career with the late, great Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I am so excited. Today we have one of my favorite people in the whole world, my longtime mentor, Steve Brill, who I started out in Steve's journalism class as a sophomore at Yale. And Steve Brill is a longtime journalist, the founder of Court TV, American Lawyer Magazine, and now he's the co-founder and co-CEO of NewsGuard, and he's flattered me very much by putting me on the board. Steve, we're so happy to have you to talk about all of your various ventures and your opinion on journalism and politics these days, but also your recent book, Tailspin.
0: Uh, Well, thanks, Elise. It's good to be here.
1: Great. So let's just start out with Tailspin, which is a book that I love because it doesn't just complain about problems. You're talking about solutions and how we can go forward. And you are one of the most prolific authors I think I've ever met because you have written about the aftermath of 9-11. You've written about education. You've written about healthcare. all within really the past decade. And now Tailspin is somewhat of I think I would describe it as an overview of all of these problems and really the root cause, which you somewhat identify as the success of meritocracy. So could you talk about the book and that premise a little bit?
0: Sure. What I tried to do was um, answer the question that a lot of us have been asking for the last couple of years, which is, uh, to put it simply, you know, how did we get here? How did this happen to us? How did... Uh, the greatest country in the world, become a place where our mass transit doesn't work, our roads don't work, our education system is the most expensive in the world and one of the least successful in terms of uh, the K-12 to education. Our healthcare system is by far the most expensive in the world and, again, is uh, middling when it comes to results. Uh, we're polarized. We're fighting with each other. Nothing seems to be working in this country. And what I tried to do was figure out how that happened. And what I discovered was, in essence, we got too much of a good thing. We took the stuff that's great about this country and let it kind of have a boomerang effect on us. Uh, To take one example, uh, the First Amendment. Uh, The First Amendment, through a series of very ingenious uh, litigation by lawyers, lawyers, who were trying to stretch the First Amendment, have turned the First Amendment into something that has basically hijacked uh, the political system by allowing unlimited money to be used uh, not only to lobby, but to um, affect the outcome of of, um, elections and uh, to polarize those elections by injecting that money um, into uh, the primary process. Uh, The primary process itself is uh, the result of something that started out being good, which is uh, reforms to take uh, the so-called bosses out of the political system and let the people nominate their candidates for you know Senate, the House, and and uh, the presidency. And that has turned into something where you have an advantage if you run uh, the furthest to the left or the furthest to the right.
1: We really saw that this last midterm cycle too. Yeah, we sure did. I want to hear you tell your story a little bit, because I think it's such an interesting starting point to explain your lens for looking at this and how it is personal to you.
0: Uh, Sure. You asked the question about uh, the meritocracy. Well, I was uh, the product of uh, the meritocracy coming to the United States in spades in uh, the 60s and 70s. I was um, a scholarship kid at Yale, and the class that I had at Yale was uh, one of the most economically diverse classes, and then it also, you know, uh, the university also decided uh, that women should be part of the equation, and that obviously added to the diversity and the talent, which is a great thing. But at the same time, these skills that were being taught at those universities and at uh, law schools, obviously, and at, you know, management schools, I mean, business schools enabled these talented people who were more talented than the people who had gone to Yale before because you could get into Yale before if you knew the right people and had the right kinds of um, If your father went there or if your friend's father went there, you you, know, you had an advantage. Now it was done much more on the merits and the good news was uh, that smarter people like you for example went to Yale. The problem is that all those smart people uh, took those credentials, uh, university credentials, law school credentials and turned them into things or activities that basically served the wealthier parts of our country. So you had much smarter lawyers who were able to do things like you know, balance uh, the need uh, for plaintiffs to go to court, uh, to block that need by uh, creating these arbitration clauses that basically now keep most people out of the courts if they have a complaint about uh, their employer or their cell phone company or a product that they've bought, or a product that they bought uh, that turned out to make them sick or to injure them. So in all different areas, you had that kind of an imbalance because there was just so much more talent at the top of legal institutions, uh, business institutions. You know, if you think that uh, really smart people or smarter people were going to business schools, they could invent things like stock buybacks and corporate takeover fights, and that created – a total bifurcation of this country. You know, it sounds like a cliche. You talk about, you know, the top 1% and everybody else, but it's really true. If you trace what happened in terms of income inequality in this country, if you start with uh, the 1920s, from the 1920s to 1970, the classes moved closer to each other. So what happened is uh, the richest uh, 5 or 10% were not that far separated from uh, the middle class or even the poor. And that's a trend that continued until 1970. And then it started going in the other direction, and it's still going in that direction.
1: So what you're kind of describing is a Frankenstein meritocracy of sorts that's a little bit out of control because the very highly educated, highly intelligent People who get these great educations are going off and figuring out financial wizardry right. tools to circumvent the system. They're figuring out sophisticated campaign finance, legal arguments, sure. which you really go back to as a big part of the problem, campaign finance. And so, a
0: huge part of the problem. Could
1: you talk about how campaign finance has distorted the political system and is part of the problem causing what you say is short-termerism?
0: Sure. Well, let's talk about how it happened. Uh, The First Amendment uh, used to be thought of as a right for the speaker, uh, the person who wants to speak, not the people who are going to listen to him or her, but uh, the person who's going to speak. In uh, 1971, there was a really smart, precocious law student at Harvard who wanted to make a name for himself. And he was thinking about this and thinking about this, and he wrote a paper, which later became um, a law review article which was uh, rejected by all the prestigious law reviews because they thought it was nonsense. And his thesis was that the real benefit of the First Amendment, or at least an equal benefit of the First Amendment, was to the listener, that you and I have a right to hear different ideas and to get different information. So uh, to take an example, um, let's say uh, you're a drugstore, and you want to advertise that you have uh, discounts on very um, expensive drugs. If you have a First Amendment right to advertise that you're discounting those drugs, it benefits people who can benefit from those discounts, you know, the poor or middle class who otherwise couldn't afford the drugs. So he wrote an article that laid that out. Ralph Nader's lawyers, Ralph Nader, or the you know, the consumer crusader of the 1960s and 70s, his lawyers saw that article and adapted it and brought a case that made its way to the Supreme Court alleging that, in fact, a discount drugstore, that was their plaintiff, had a free speech right to advertise uh, discount drugs. And the incumbent uh, big drugstores had lobbied to get a law passed in in, uh, Virginia uh, that didn't allow the advertising of any drug prices. And the argument was that this was hurting all the people who could benefit from uh, the lower cost of drugs and also that it was just, uh, you know, anti-competitive. So it got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you know, you're right. The whole idea of the First Amendment is to have as much speech as possible because everybody in a democracy benefits from that speech, not just the speaker. Now, that sounds great, right? That from the 70s right up through Citizens United morphed into a right of corporations to speak about anything and also morphed into something that the same professor wrote an article about. That speech included the right to spend money on, you know, advertising if you're running for office or to contribute money to people who are running for office. And that basically became uh, the Citizens United case.
1: Well, and I thought that the passage in the book talking about how much time and energy lawmakers have to spend fundraising and just how incredibly depressing picking up the phone and just dialing for dollars constantly (laughs) – That hit a little too close to home, and it's so disturbing because I don't necessarily see an immediate way out of that or the political will to get out of it. And one idea that you proposed that is a very simple idea in the book that I loved, though, was that politicians who go on TV should have a chyron under them saying where the lobbying dollars they accept come from and little ideas like that. Talk about the solutions you propose with regard to campaign finance reform. Uh,
0: well, first me... uh, well, first, let me recount the scene you're referring to. I spent the day with a member of Congress who, who shall be nameless and his party shall be nameless. Or her party shall <laughs>
1: be famous. Hey, not my party in a, anymore. <laughs> in a
0: in a windowless room um, about a block from the Capitol. And um, he's sitting there um, at a table uh, like the one we're sitting at. And um, his aide is just handing him pieces of paper and um, is dialing a phone for him. All day, five hours, he's calling people asking for money. And as I explain in uh, the book, he has um, a Post-it note that's hanging uh, right over the lamp that he's using, and the post it note is in his handwriting and it says, I don't give a shit. And I looked at the post it note and I said, What's this about? He said, I have to remind myself that I don't give a shit. And I said, What are you talking about? He said, Okay, I get some guy on the phone and you know, I asked him, You know, hi Bob, how are you? Uh, you know, how's Mary, or your wife? Oh, she died last week. Oh, that's terrible, but you know, listen. Uh, you know, Friday's the end of the quarter and we really have to...
1: Please max out immediately. You know,
0: if you could max out by Friday, that would be great. He said, that's what I have to do. He said, and I'm not that kind of person. I don't want to be that person, but I have to be that person. And that's crazy. I mean, the founding fathers could not have thought that the First Amendment meant that. And that's what it means. And there's another uh, note in the book that Congresswoman from Arizona, Kristen Simina, who is now the senator from Arizona was known in democratic circles, just absolutely a hero in democratic circles, because she could handle three cell phones at a time, asking people for money. You know, she'd take one, she'd How hang up, she'd take that? the other one, then she'd take another one. that's what she was most known for. I loved in the book where the staffer refused to confirm that she triple dialed. No, <laughs> that's right. So I called her for comment, and she refused to confirm it, but she said, but you can say, that she's highly efficient when she's raising money.
1: What I like about the book is you really aren't approaching this from a partisan lens. You never do that with your books, be it Mm. healthcare, education, discussing, you know, combating terrorism. You really do stick to the facts. And that's something that really comes through in your journalism and something that I feel I am very grateful to you for instilling in me just the importance of having your reporting backed up by facts.
0: Right. Um, In fact, uh, there are a couple of pages in the book where I talk about this and I mention something that I found just absolutely hard to believe, which is that in recent polling, there is still a substantial number of people who think Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Now, that's not that surprising, but there are also a substantial number of people, 15 or 20 percent, who think that 9-11 was an inside job by the Bush administration. So... If that doesn't tell you what you need to know about how this country is not, you know, sharing the same set of facts, you know, we can disagree on what to do about those facts, but if there isn't even a, a 100% consensus on something like that, we've got problems and those problems really stem from the fact that there is a lot of crazy stuff out there online and a lot of people believe it and one of the reasons they believe it is that when you see a headline in, in um, a news feed on Facebook, let's say, or a headline in, in um, a Google search, the only thing you really see is the headline and you don't see what the source is and you have no idea who the source is or what the source is. Now, uh, you know, you and I may have an idea because, you know, we're
2: policy wonks, we're media people, but most people don't know. Um, One of the things that I found interesting, I worked in politics and government, but I also worked in financial services and you mentioned you talk about the casino economy and I would try to explain that to people and I'd say, well, this is how it works. You get to go to the casino to gamble with other people's money. Um, If you win, you get to keep a percentage of it. lose. And if you lose, maybe in a year or two or three, somebody will ask you to leave the casino, but you'll get to go to another casino and do the whole thing (laughs) over again. So talk about the casino economy and how that led us to where we are in this tailspin. Sure, one of the things I cover in the book is is what I call and what a lot of people call I didn't come
0: up with this uh, the casino economy and the big picture is that that this country's primary uh, product is around, you know, paper, financial services, legal documents, lawsuits, but mostly um, you know, high finance corporate deals moving assets from one place to another from one corporation to another from one you know Delaware corporation to another one uh, but not creating new assets and why would a country want to do that the answer is that that's where the money is uh, you can make all this money moving paper around and gambling on the fact that the paper in some way is going to be worth more money so let's take the you know the biggest example and the one uh, that caused uh, the crash in the late 1960s early 1970s again there's a pattern here all this stuff in uh, the tailspin starts in the late 1960s um there's a very smart banker who figures out that all these banks across the country have mortgages they've loaned money to people to own their homes and they're sitting there with all this money owed in the form of a mortgage What if you package all those mortgages? You take 10,000 mortgages that are each $100,000 each. I can't do the math sitting here right now, but you put those 10,000 in a package and you sell them to an investor who will get the cash flow from all those mortgages. And you take a little bit of profit for yourself, but by selling it to them, you buy up the mortgages from all those banks around the country. And so you give them their money back with a slight discount, and they can then give out new mortgages because they have all this money from you know the mortgages they gave out. And long story short, there's like a daisy chain, and it ends up with a bunch of banks and investors overseas, doesn't matter where they are, who are holding you know a mortgage for someone's home in Iowa. And it's not like they looked at the home and said, yeah, this is a good mortgage. The home looks like it's worth that kind of money. I'm good with this. This is a safe mortgage. The bank has assured them everything was safe. And then again, you have all this money coming back to town for the banks to give new mortgages. They gave new mortgages, then they resold those mortgages. And that's how you had the mortgage-backed security crisis. Because at a certain point, the music stopped because they'd given out so many mortgages. A lot of them were going bad because they had these you know, these crazy provisions where the mortgage was interest-free and totally free for a year or two. You just got all the money. You didn't even pay any interest on it. Then you paid some interest. And then in the fourth year, the interest went to like 10%, and these people are out of their homes. The homes went down in value, and then more people stopped paying off the mortgages. Why would I pay off a mortgage if I'm underwater? If If the cost of the mortgage is much more than the house is worth, I'll just move out of the house. So that caused the crisis. That's explainable. But what is harder to explain and more outrageous is that Nobody really got hurt by it except the people who lost their homes. The banks had insurance against the possibility that these mortgages would go bad from companies like AIG and other investment banks. And when they went to AIG and the other banks to collect on their insurance, those banks were going to go under. So the government says, no, we'll bail you out. So the government bailed everybody out. Everybody got to keep all the bonuses they got during the 5 or 10 years this was going on and the only victims were people in iowa who had gotten really bad mortgages that they never should have gotten and were forced out of their homes so if you're wondering why there was a vast swath of this country that was really pissed off you know by the time of uh, you know the 2012 election and the 2016 election that's one of the reasons because again the bankers had their moats. They kept their bonuses. They had
1: their lobbyists protecting them. They yeah. had their lawyers. And by
0: the way, and you know, when no one went to jail, no one was, you know, no one was even charged with a crime.
2: And by the way, I love about your journalism when you talk about the money that, like Elise said, that their lobbyists spent. It's the only place that I've ever read where you have the actual amount of money. Everybody else has these lowball numbers because they go. Again, I don't know your methodology, but you find it all. Because I I went through your financial services, your oil and gas. And, it's and called amazing. sort
0: of being crazy and just sitting there and being willing to add it all up. And, you know, sometimes my wife looks at me like I'm nuts because <laughs> I've got all these papers on the dining room table. We're grateful for, for your sacrifice <laughs> because – yeah.
1: How much influence do these lobbies have? What is the most influential lobby if you had to pinpoint well, one lobby?
0: I, by far the biggest is the healthcare industry, which is – when I wrote my healthcare book, and I think this is still true – it spends something like three and a half times as much money as the next biggest, which was the much feared military industrial complex. Now, let's remember, you know, lobbying even more so than than spending money on campaigns or, you know, spending money on advertising campaigns. Lobbying is, you know, specifically protected in the First Amendment. You have a right to, you know, bring your grievances before Congress. So you're not going to outlaw lobbying. What you can do, obviously, and is outlaw lobbyists, you know, either bundling money for candidates or giving money to candidates. Um, you could do that. In fact, there are states that have done it, and it's passed, you know, First Amendment challenges even. Um, and what you can do is give the staffs of members of Congress, you know, higher salaries so they don't have an incentive, you know, just to quit after they've been there for a year or two so they can go be lobbyists. If you had better staff members, they wouldn't have to rely on lobbyists. There. There are a ton of situations where lobbyists, you know, and they often help things because of this, literally know so much more about the issue than anyone on uh, the congressional committees even. That is the swamp. I mean, that is the swamp. When I was running this other company that I started that created uh, the Registered Traveler Program, which is now uh, the pre-check program that the government runs, I remember I hired a lobbyist because... Uh, we didn't want the government to give us anything. We just didn't want the government to, to take anything from us. To just let us operate as a private industry, regulated but as a private industry. So anyway, I hired a lobbyist uh, who was and is a good friend of mine, and he gets me in to see uh, the chairman of the subcommittee on transportation of the Homeland Security Committee. I think it was anyway, and it was this big deal. You get to see the chairman. You know, the chairman this, the chairman that, and I go to this you know, office in uh, the Longworth building, you know, at the Capitol, and I get in to see the chairman. I have my lobbyist with me. The chairman is like 70, 75 years old. He's sitting there with two staff members, and he immediately dozes off, <laughs> immediately dozes off. You know, I talk to his staff, you know, staff is shaking their heads. This is great. And I talked to them for 12 or 15 minutes. They walk me out and his chief of staff says, boy, that was a really good meeting. The chairman was really impressed. And I said, you know, he looked like he was sleeping. Oh no, he was. A, and
1: you wonder a, why the people are. Fed
0: wait, 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 with the wait, wait! You're you're missing the punchline. The punchline is, I go about a hundred yards, just as I'm about to get into the elevator in the long, uh, building, uh, my BlackBerry. I then had a BlackBerry. Um, uh, my BlackBerry goes off, and it's an email from the chairman
2: asking me to come to a fundraiser. One of the things I also want to get you to talk about is at the end of the book, on a very hopeful note, you say definitively that Americans will answer the call of a new, new frontier. Now, I love that construction because when President Kennedy announced the new frontier, that at the time Senator Kennedy at the Los Angeles Convention in 1960, he said that courage, not complacency, was the need. And talk a little bit about reengagement and uh in, in terms of answering that call, civic well, what I, civic. What network. I'm
0: talking about when I talk about in the book is I I've always believed, and I came to really learn this and believe it in the book, that to function successfully, any society or any country, including ours, has to have a a mix of you know personal responsibility and personal um, accountability for the common good. So you feel responsible in some way for the common good. You have to also feel responsible for your well-being and your family's well-being but you have to feel some responsibility for the common good and the system has to operate so that if you behave irresponsibly you're held accountable and what and we've lost that in this country you know we're cynical about the common good because we're so polarized we don't think anything works you know why should i contribute you know to the common good when no one else is and why should i want to feel accountable when these guys who run these big banks you know aren't accountable these members of congress live um, in gerrymandered districts so they're not accountable nobody's accountable why should i think it's fair that i be accountable and when you have that kind of cynicism you know rightful cynicism you're in a pretty dangerous place and what the country needs are you know leaders locally uh, leaders running the kinds of organizations i describe and leaders nationally who can convince people that uh, they have more in common than they, they don't have in common or, or, or that separates them. And the biggest irony and chasm there is that the middle class in this country has been so screwed that they now have so much more in common with the poor than they ever did that it ought to be possible for a you know, leader, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, to unite those people. They're both on food stamps. They both need the kind of labor law protections that they don't have. They both need the kind of public education system that they don't have. And what, you know, what politicians have preferred to do in the last election, or at least, uh, you know, some of them was to convince the middle class, well, you're in bad shape because of those people below you, not because of those people who are above you, that, you know, it's immigrants who have really screwed you over. Um, It's, you know, it's the poor who are taking money from you and, and ruining your schools And holding you back in terms of jobs. And that's the the challenge. And it shouldn't be that difficult for someone who can articulate that the opposite is true.
1: Well, since you have been in journalism your entire career, you're a Yale-educated lawyer and you started – a legal magazine known as American Lawyer that really looked into the inner workings of big law in New York mm-hmm. City, but you also started a cable network, Court TV, and then right. you also teach journalism at Yale, which is how I met you. What's the greatest challenge you see today for journalism in America in the age of Donald Trump?
0: Well, even, you know, leaving Donald Trump aside, the, you know, the greatest challenge is – Uh, restoring the economic model of journalism because um, a lot of journalism used to get a free ride because the local newspaper was a monopoly and could charge whatever it wanted for advertising. You know, I'm sure where you grew up, the local newspaper was rich and, and, you know, they could pay people.
1: My grandfather owned one of – two newspapers in our town for a bit, the Marshall Messenger. So I would go well, there up there go. and we would – I was a little girl and the newspapers would be laid out on the table and your hands would get right. all the ink stained and – but that I... – Yeah, you
0: know, the internet has um, has gobbled up you know, the finances of local newspapers, especially local newspapers, but you know, larger newspapers. When it's harmed
1: consumers because yeah. they don't have the connection to their local communities.
0: That's right. I mean it is core to democratic values that – There'd be a reporter at, you know, town zoning board meetings and city halls and, you know, not just Congress, but state houses too. But that's still a big challenge. Um, The other challenge is in the age of Trump, if you want to call it that, is that especially if you're writing books, but pretty much, you know, a lot of everything, and you probably have seen this in uh, the work you're doing, being, you know, provocative and outrageous and extreme – Pays a lot better.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you that's know, what Fox News particularly excels at and is having such an incredible amount of influence in the post Roger Ailes era because it's really like the guardrails are off completely.
0: Well, but there's that. But then if you look at uh, the bestseller list, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for nonfiction books, I'm really, you know, happy to have made the bestseller list as briefly as I did this time because I don't write stuff that is far left or far right. But almost any Bill O'Reilly book, if you just put his name on it, it's going to hit the list. So if, you know, if you're a kid thinking about going into journalism and you see, well, this is how I get rich and famous, that's that's not a great thing. Now, it's always been somewhat like that. But, you know, I think in terms of online journalism, which is where most of it is, and uh, the cable networks, there is a bigger premium for that. You know, if you started saying all kinds of crazy stuff on MSNBC, you'd probably be if not on MSNBC, you'd be, you know, somewhere more often even than you are.
1: How can journalists restore public trust? It's another huge problem because you look at how members of Congress are actually more popular than journalists these days, which really is not a good statistic considering the popularity <laughs> of Congress. It's
0: not great. The first thing they have to do is be accountable and be transparent, and a lot of news organizations have gotten better. Uh, NewsGuard is certainly going to help them along in that process, but there's a reason people don't trust a lot of journalists, and and it's not necessarily that they get facts wrong. It's that if you take you know a political position instead of just a you know a straight up position. You know, half the world isn't going to like you. You know, the half that's on the other side and the half that does agree with you might not respect you because, you know, you're just saying what they want to hear. You know, the other issue is, that you, again, um, you have to be willing to do the work. I mean, I don't know if I told your class this. I know I've told a lot of my recent classes. But, uh, the very first day I said, listen, I have really bad news for you people. You're in this class because you want to be journalists. And here's the bad news. You're really smart. I mean, you got into Yale, so you must be really smart. But that doesn't matter nearly as much as wanting to work hard and just wanting to kill yourself if you're working on something. And I like nothing more than to be in a room that is 100 boxes full of legal documents, you know, depositions and discovery that I can sit and read because I know I'm the only one who's crazy enough to read all of them. <laughs> Well, it doesn't take any brains.
1: (laughs) The problem, too, is figuring out how to make the public care when you go to the trouble to go through the hundred of boxes. And The New York Times recently did an incredible investigation about Donald Trump's family tax history that really didn't get that much pickup considering what an incredible jaw-dropping story. And you also, I like to point out, did an incredible story during the 2016 Republican primary about the great – learning institution Trump known University. as Trump University. Right. So can you talk about that story Trump, and Trump the lens University on Donald story. Trump it provides? Well, well,
0: you're right about that. That's because I've, I've learned, and this isn't really nice to say, but if you don't get on the cover of Time Magazine, might as well not be in Time Magazine. And I've been lucky enough to be on the cover a lot of times so I so I can appreciate the difference. Uh, the, they didn't put that on the cover. And as you can imagine, I wasn't you know shy about urging them to put it up,
1: And it came out in November 2015. So yeah. this was really was the first during story. the peak battle right. era because I was working on a campaign. I was at the debates. I was in the day-to-day warfare that basically every Republican candidate was having with Donald Trump, right. trying to figure exactly. out some way to stop him. But no one did. And here's this big story that is about how Donald Trump is such so a big con. So it didn't con. get
0: picked up then. And the only reason it got... Any traction was uh, that Bob Woodward, who's a friend of mine, had read it and was on Morning Joe one morning in January and just started reading from it and said, "Hasn't anybody seen this story?" This is and, and that's how Trump University became kind of well.
1: A and story. I met one of the sweet older men featured in the story, a retiree in a green room one night, and he was going on an MSNBC show at around ten p.m. to talk about his experience, and he was telling me he was a Republican. He just wanted to take this great opportunity. And it was a complete scam. And it made me so sad that no one cared about this scam.
0: Yeah, the thing about it was that the demographic that that Trump University appealed to is the demographic that elected Trump president. People who rightly felt left out of the economy, rightly felt you know victimized by a lot of the things uh, that I talk about in the book. And we're looking for a way out of that, looking for some opportunity. They, they weren't evil. They, you know, they weren't stupid. They just were you – know, they thought that if they invested – and this is a lot of money. This is 30000 bucks, you, know,
1: you have to be wealthy to have that kind of money or you have to saved and you are banking your future on or it. Or
0: you have to have uh, you know, two or three credit cards that you tap out to do it, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of them did. You know, retired fireman. One of the direct mail pieces that he that was used to get people to enroll. The first or second sentence was, uh, "Do you want to spend your final years as a greeter at Walmart?" And it had a picture of a Walmart greeter, and that's what a lot of those people were looking at. So, you know, again, but that's that's the kind of journalism where you know you really got to do the work. You you know you can't just. You know, get it on the one hand; on the other hand, the the documents in that case, which were uncontested, um, you know, Trump himself in a deposition had said he'd never met any of the professors, um, even though the second paragraph of, of the of the ad or, or or the direct mail piece said, "I've handpicked, you know, the best professors in the world." But you know, that's a lesson because
1: well, it's the challenge <laughs> of putting out factual information and making people care about it. And that's what I think somewhat is going to be the challenge for Robert Mueller in the upcoming months, as he presents a complicated, factual case about what happened with Russia collusion during the 2016 election. And you know Bob Mueller. You Mm -hmm. know some of the lawyers who are working on the investigation. Mm -hmm. You have written about law and national security over your career. What's your take on the investigation at this point?
0: My take is as someone who wrote extensively about the Ken Starr investigation, my, my first take is that, that Bob Mueller is the opposite of Ken Starr. Uh, one of the more celebrated magazine pieces I wrote or one of the more hated magazine pieces I wrote was um, a piece about uh, you know, Ken Starr's leaks during what we should now call the Bill Clinton investigation and the Bill Clinton scandal, not the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Thank you. And the opening picture of that article is a picture you would never see of Bob Mueller. It's Ken Starr standing in front of microphones outside the office building where his office as special prosecutor was. And those microphones were stationary microphones because he did it like every other day. He held a briefing, and in between the briefings, his staff, um, his deputies— the number two of which was a guy named Brett Kavanaugh, were leaking like mad to the yeah. press. So that's the first difference. And that leads me to my real point, which is I don't have the vaguest <laughs> idea of what's going to happen because that place has been as tight as a drum. The only thing we know for sure is that every time he does something, every time Mo does something, it is a total and complete surprise. You know, just step back and think about it. whatever it was, even, you know, yesterday's filing about, you know, Manafort you know, not cooperating, a total surprise.
1: Do you think that Donald Trump wrote his answers to Mueller? I wasn't there. (laughs) What do you think of of his legal? What do you think of how Donald Trump has handled his own personal legal strategy as an imperiled president?
0: I think you can't really tell that until you know know, what he did and what the outcome is. One thing I will observe is that, and I think I said this um, on um, an MSNBC show During the campaign, remember when uh, he offered to pay the legal bills of someone who was going to smack one of the demonstrators? Well, I was on some TV show or some radio show and I blurted out, uh, you know, Trump doesn't even pay his own legal bills.
1: Oh, well, this is a story (laughs) I want you to tell. I had this uh, on my list of stories that I wanted you to tell because I really want to find the PDF and I've tried to find it of American Lawyer because you had a feature about Donald Trump. It wasn't a
0: feature. It was sort of a regular report of him you know, having stiffed a law firm here and a law firm there. And and he just went from law firm to law firm. Now, he changed law firms in the Trump University case. I don't know for a fact, but I'm assuming he changed law firms for what had become, at least in the old days, the usual reason, which is the law firm he had had this really funny tradition of wanting to get paid for their work.
1: But having studied the best lawyers in the world, having ranked them, how would you rank the caliber of the talent that – Robert Mueller has assembled versus the talent that Donald Trump has on his legal well, team.
0: Well, that's a, that's, that's a trick question. You know, uh, I mean, I know the talent uh, that Mueller has assembled. I know some of them, and I know uh, many of the rest of them by reputation, and they're really good. They're so good that they don't have to talk to reporters while the case you know, is in the investigatory stage. It's hard to criticize lawyers unless you know what they're working with.
1: Let's talk about some of the heroes who are trying to solve these entrenched problems.
0: Right. The really surprising thing I found in doing the book was, you know, maybe this is just because, you know, as a journalist, you get to be cynical instead of just skeptical, is there are all these people who were seemingly, you know, banging their heads against the wall. There was a group, you know, called Issue One because they decided, rightly, that uh, the campaign finance is Issue One. You can't solve any of the problems in this country, whether it's healthcare or labor reform, uh, you can't get to anything until you get over the hump of taking all the money and influence out of politics. So they're hard at work, you know, coming up with ideas, they've gotten some reforms done at the state level, they've created uh, lately um, a coalition of 60 or 70 members of Congress from both parties who were so disgusted that they're arguing for different kinds of reforms. And what impressed me about these people was their, their uh, resilience because I said to them, I said, don't you just get frustrated? Don't you just think you're knocking your head against the wall? And they said, well, someone has to do it. And when the public gets so disgusted, which the public increasingly is, we're going to be there with a plan. And that's pretty good.
1: That's a way more optimistic note than much of what we're hearing these days in politics. And that's why I highly recommend this book for people who are at a point of despair over our political system because we need to not just be sitting around and complaining. We need to talk about solutions and help the people who are out there on the front lines working for solutions. So, Steve, thank you so much for writing this great book and for coming in and well, chatting thanks. with us about thanks it.
0: Thanks to me about it. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit WordsMatterMedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter
1: on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.